The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Little chat. Little chat. Chat, 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 chat. for a chat with Nick Bad, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of Chat with Nick Bat, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bat, and it's been a couple of weeks. Previously, on the end of my last episode, I had plugged that I had an interesting and, and a conversation I was very excited about upcoming with somebody that you guys all knew or that I said that most people would know who this person was and that it was going to be an, an important and timely conversation. And long story short, that person had uh, some some things come up personally that interrupted our ability to record the first week we intended to do so. So, took the week off and was hoping to do that uh, the following week. And that also uh, did not work out for them. Uh, unfortunately, some some things happened that were that were difficult for them to to deal with. Bad news personally, and also uh, the conversation that we were going to have was about some some difficult stuff that they went through and then and then how they came out on the other side of it and how you know sports fans and stuff like that can can play a role in positively in people's lives and things like that. So long story short, it would not have been the most um, would not have been the easiest and most joyful conversation because it was about them experiencing difficult things in the past. Then they just had this other thing come up and, and it just didn't, uh, it didn't work out for them to be up to, to go through that right now. So it's a conversation that I still think may happen someday and that I'll be excited to share with you guys, but it didn't happen now. And I'm not going to tell you anything else about it really because I'm hoping that when it does happen, it'll be something I can share with y'all on this channel and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it then. But. I am joined in conversation this week by Dr. Zach Binney and Dr. Maria Batazzi. Now, if you listened to an episode that I dropped on this podcast channel 
about two months ago, I did an interview with Dr. Batazzi and Dr. Benny about COVID, about what was happening, about how it might affect the football season, about all kinds of things. And that feels like a freaking lifetime ago at this point. Uh, Stay-at-home orders were kind of just happening, and goodness, uh, we, we are in a whole nother world at this point, right? So there's so much more that we know. There's so much more that we're tackling and that we're trying to deal with and make decisions about with COVID. And it seemed like a good opportunity for me to reconnect with Dr. Benny and Dr. Batazzi and provide a, a conversation to you all with an update, with, with things that we know about COVID now and, and what kinds of things we're still sort of navigating and trying to make progress on and how it's going to affect not just the Buffalo Bills, not just the NFL, but sports in general, you know, the NCAA, what the NBA and the NHL are trying to do, what NASCAR has been doing. Uh, I mean, everything. So that's what we're gonna, what we're gonna do today. We spent the first 40 minutes or so of the conversation, I'll be honest with you, just talking about the disease in general, what we've learned, what we have to do in order to get through it, and what kinds of things we are still trying to accomplish. What, what Dr. Bin, people like Dr. Binney and Dr. Batazzi are working on and trying to help everyone get through as we, you know, try to withstand this pandemic. So there's a lot of general information, and then we do get into a sports-specific conversation about, you know, the ideas of how players can actually play the game safely, about fans being in the stands. If that is there a way to do that now? You know, Dr. Biddy's got some very strong opinions about that, so I'll let him speak for himself. But you guys know how I roll with this. These are long-form interviews. Ads in the middle of them would be dumb and annoying. So we're going to take a break right now. I'm going to play the advertisements before my episode, and then when we come back, you'll be joining me, Dr. Maria Batazzi, and Dr. Zach Benny, talking about the situation we are dealing with with COVID, and at the end, I'll be back with you to wrap things up. Stay tuned. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog. So why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or simply nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter or Daily Zen made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in to this edition of Chat with Nick Bat. And we have got two very esteemed guests who are joining us for the conversation today. Uh, Dr. Maria Batazzi, who is a Leshner Fellow with the American Association uh, Advancement of Science out of Houston, so in a spot with a lot of activity going on around the COVID-19 virus. And also joining us again is Dr. Zach Binney, who is an epidemiologist at Oxford College at Emory University in Atlanta, and also a writer for Football Outsiders. Uh, Dr. Batazzi, we'll start with you. How are you doing uh, today? We're recording on Friday, July 3rd, so just shortly before this is going to drop. But how are you doing as of now? 
Well, I'm personally doing fine. Thank you so much for asking. I think, unfortunately, our Houston community doesn't look that that nice. Uh, we are all uh, hoping for a safe uh, and a little bit um, calm um, July 4th weekend. I know everybody's pretty uh, animate of trying to uh, get together with their families and friends, but I'm hoping that now with some of the maybe new guidances that we're getting out of our state officials and certainly, you know, uh, some of our local officials that we can listen to them and be a little bit more mindful of how we can protect not only ourselves, but, you know, our, our neighbors and our, and our families by limiting a little bit how we, we socialize this, uh, this long weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad that you're doing well. Dr. Binney, how are you doing in Atlanta? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just echo uh, Dr. Batazzi's recommendations for people avoiding large gatherings uh, as much as they can. Uh, you know, small gatherings are one thing, but every person you add increases the risk. So keep them as small uh, as you can. Uh, but, you know, here in Georgia, we're uh, we're watching our cases go up right now. We're very nervous. But uh, so far, everyone uh, around me is healthy and my family is healthy. So we're we're as good as you can ask for right now. Yeah. And what about your dad? I know that the last time we spoke a couple of months ago, we had a conversation about you having a conversation with your father because of his age and the risk factors with all of that. Has he also been able to avoid you know, any trouble with COVID and whatnot? Uh, as far as we know, uh, he hasn't shown any symptoms. He hasn't contracted the virus. So, so far, so good. Knock on wood. All right. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Batasi, I'd like to start with you, if I can, to ask um, just kind of, there's a lot of things whenever we spoke previously about how COVID was coming and what it might do to the sports seasons and things like that. There was so much that we did not know about the virus, about how it transmitted primarily, about what kind of symptom list was comprehensive if the, if we had one, uh, what kinds of things we were looking for. And we, you know, we sort of just knew that the testing wasn't where it needed to be. And we were hoping it wasn't going to get as bad as it probably has gotten. So what sorts of things have we learned over maybe the last 60 days or so that we actually know about this virus that maybe we didn't previously? Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Nick. So yes, I mean, albeit we may not still know enough. <laughs> you never know enough, right? You, you know, we need a long time to really understand, you know, how these viruses behave, how they're, you know, transmitted, or how even can we protect ourselves against them. But I think what we have seen is a confirmation that this virus is definitely very infective. In fact, the strain that circulates in the Americas, you know, not only in the U.S., but certainly in the Americas, it's very infective. Um, we now also know that the, the disease that this virus can cause uh, doesn't limit itself to be just a respiratory disease, but in fact, it's most of a, more of a systemic disease, meaning that it can tackle not only, of course, your lungs and, you know, your respiratory systems, but most likely um, your heart, your coagulation system, your intestinal, gastrointestinal system, and, and many others. And I think this also raises a little bit the concern that I know a lot of people, especially those who may um, think that they have a pretty good health status, the fact that they may believe that even if you get exposed, 
you may be scathed by the fact that you don't get either even symptoms or maybe even very not uh, very le- uh, not very serious symptoms. That we right now, what we still do not know is what kind of long-term sequelae will this virus leave just by the fact that it may have been in contact with our um, system, right? Um, and also, of course, we now know a little bit better of uh, how to potentially uh, maybe even design better tools to prevent and certainly hopefully even treat uh, this. We know that the clinical management in our hospitals, albeit they are still being uh, totally like subsumed with so many cases that go into our hospital systems, but at least clinically managing the, the, the symptoms is, has been work, working a little bit better. Dr. Binney, is there anything you'd like to add to that you, that you would think that we have learned over the past uh, two months or so? The I guess the only other thing I would add is that um, we've learned that a little bit more about how the virus transmits. So originally we thought it could transmit both person to person and person to object to person. So person to object to person would be, I stand over a desk, I cough, Nick, you touch it, then you touch your face. And now we've got uh, COVID-19. That absolutely can happen. But uh, our best guess right now is that it's not nearly as common as face-to-face transmission. So that helps us learn a little bit more about what activities are the most dangerous. And it's spending time indoors, especially around large groups of people. That's bad. So things like bars or concerts or sporting events that we already had, you know, a decent idea were bad. We we now know are are definitely a really really bad idea. But it also gives us a, a little bit more of an understanding of uh, of things that we can do that don't have a high risk. So for example, we don't think the virus uh, very commonly will come to you through your groceries, and that getting takeout food probably isn't an enormous risk, especially if everybody is wearing masks. So that's nice, right? Where as we're learning, we're able to to understand more about what are low risk and high risk activities and make informed decisions about how to live our lives while still hopefully working to contain this virus, though in many areas of the country uh, right now, it is still out of control. So, you know, I think that in in probably your guys' opinions, because it seems as though the scientific community has a has a relatively uh, firm opinion about best practices and things that communities should be being encouraged to implement by their leaders, and that citizens should be taking up either out of a mandate that is impressed upon them or uh, just out of a you know generous concern for their loved ones and their their neighbors. Uh, simultaneously, there has been some controversy about the efficacy of things like masks, unfortunately, for a time, and of uh, just different sorts of, of behaviors that people were not sure whether or not it was necessary to to do this or to do that or whatnot. So, with everything that we know now, uh, you know, obviously, masks are a thing now that I think that the tide is turning on it. So, so it seems that even those who have been vocally critical in the past are starting to come along and say that those do help us slow the transmission of the virus. But what other kinds of things um, are still stuff that people like yourselves, you know, people who are who are uh, medical professionals and, and experts on what's going on, that citizens and, and people, fa- sports fans or not, need to be doing in their daily lives to help slow everything that's going on with COVID? 
Yeah, well, I'll just reiterate the two things that that you and I just talked about. Uh, One is masks. And I think it is important to remember that while there is a small vocal minority opposed to masks, they are very much a fringe. Okay, the vast majority of people are wearing masks. If you look at surveys, masks are literally more popular than apple pie. Literally. And I mean, I understand that because I hate apple pie. So I like that 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 uh, this is what we're seeing, because if you gave me a choice between a mask and a slice of apple pie, I would take the mask 11 days out of 10. But, you know, it's it's just important not to make this into a bigger controversy, I think, than it is. Um, And we just need everybody from all sides, and you're seeing it now, to really get behind uh, the masking message. That's that's what we uh, need to be doing. And the second thing is avoid extended time indoors around groups. Do as much as you possibly can outside. Keep groups small. Keep them consistent. You can form these, um, sometimes they're called quarantine pods, where like, let's say you have three families where the kids are all friends or something like that. And hopefully the parents like each other decently too. You know what? You guys hang out. Okay. You don't have to all isolate in your separate groups, but only those three families hang out together. You know, it can be any combination. It can be two of you. It can be all three of you, but try to keep your groups consistent is the other thing that I would recommend, but, but mainly avoid extended time indoors. And the two hardest things for people right now with that are bars, which we just need to not have and not do. They're pretty much one of the best places for the virus to spread between alcohol lowering inhibitions, you not wearing masks because you're trying to drink, it's loud, so you're shouting, you're in close proximity, it's indoors, it's just a, a horrible, horrible idea. And we've seen outbreak after outbreak. And then unfortunately, the other one, which which I recognize is really hard for a lot of people, is church. I'm really sorry to say it, but um, we've seen outbreaks at churches, and uh, I would encourage you to talk to your clergy and see if they can relocate services outside. That would make them a lot safer uh, if that's not feasible just because of where you are. Think about how important it is for you to go. Maybe reduce your frequency if you can. Go every other week. Uh, make sure that everybody is wearing a mask and that your your clergy is communicating that. Do anything you can to reduce the amount of exposure that you have to other people in indoor spaces. That's the number one thing that you can do both to protect yourself and to help the country get the epidemic under control to help your neighbors and those in your community. Because with an infectious disease, your personal choices are never just your personal choices. You have an effect on everyone around you. So we've all got a part to play. We're we're all on a team. And and we need to listen to our coaches and pull in the same direction. And I think uh, I think that we're doing a decent job of that, but but we can get better. Dr. Patasi, is there anything that you'd like to add to the recommendations that Dr. Benny just shared? Yes, I just want to stress the point of you know the uh, extended time uh, uh, notion that uh, uh, certainly we heard. Um, it's the fact that again, you know, you may be uh, wearing a mask. Uh, but then, of course, you know, you, you may be, you know, socializing with groups. And then as time goes by, you know, again, those inhibitions start, you know, creeping up. And then you say, well, you know, I'm going to just take it out, you know, take it off for a while. And then, of course, you, you start, you know, forgetting about of even wearing the mask appropriately, you know. And so that the exposure of, again, if you just walk in and out, 
you know, and wear the mask is probably you're not going to be at the same exposure um, uh, rate as if you kind of like hang out uh, with a lot of people around you for a long ex- uh, extended amount of time. And I think, unfortunately, in this, if, if we even go back to the uh, um, to some of the sports uh, concerns, you know, of, of bringing back again, um, you know, the, the, everything around sports is that it's not only the number of people, but it's the fact that most likely it's the amount of time that you're going to be um, surrounding yourselves with the people when you are attempting to eventually, you know, attend one of these sports events, right? It's not like just picking up the food from, you know, a, a, a a pickup and uh, a takeout restaurant, um, it's similar to being in a bar, right? Because you like hanging around and you, of course, most likely also like to kind of eat and drink around, you know, some of these sports events. So it's the it's the amount of time that you expose yourself unless you really, you know, keep, you know, very strict um, distance as well as, of course, you know, um, uh, masks and, and 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 hygiene habits. That's right. And I'll just uh, go back to a football metaphor here. Uh, let's say the virus is Tom Brady. What do you need to do to stop Tom Brady? Well, basically, the thing is, you give him the fewest chances to beat you that you can. Right. Uh, one good strategy would be to hang on to the ball, not turn it over. Don't give him chance after chance to come back because one of these times he's going to get you. And the virus is the same way. Uh, the more time that you spend around somebody who might be infected, the more chances that virus has to get into you. Uh, not wearing a mask gives it another chance. It makes it easier. It's like it's like spotting Brady two defenders. It's like trying to to defend his eleven with nine guys. If you're not wearing a mask, uh, he's he's gonna get through. Um, he's gonna have a lot harder time if if uh, he's playing eleven on eleven. So you know, think of it that way if that helps. One thing I wanted to ask is about – I have two questions specifically that are bouncing around right now. But the first one is whenever we spoke initially, one of the big things that was a concern of uh, both of yours was about a, at the time a stay-at-home order, a national stay-at-home order not being in place. And you know we so that happened in many, many communities across the country. And then we – you know got out of that and reopened and have been going through different phases, which either, you know, are lettered or numbered depending on the state or the community that you're in. And as that has happened, we've seen these cases rise. Now, I would assume that that is all related, but in your guys' opinion, is there a way that we are able to um, bring things back to a more desirable, reasonable level and weather the storm in a more reasonable way without going back to the kind of stay-at-home orders that we were all experiencing at the end of March and through April and most of May? Well, uh, the first thing I would say is the need to do that depends on the area that you're living in. For example, I see no reason why uh, Massachusetts or New York or Maryland right now would need to shut down, okay? Because they certainly haven't eliminated the virus, but they, you know, they're on a downward trajectory, and and that's good. Other areas like Texas and Florida and Arizona and a lot of other places in the South, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, they need to be taking more drastic action. And the earlier they take action, the less drastic it has to be. I don't think we need to do a total, total shutdown like we saw before. But 
certainly as we're learning about the things that spread the virus and the things that don't, we need to shut down the things we know that do. So again, things like bars, uh, other uh, indoor spaces where people uh, congregate for a long period of time. Those are things that you're going to have to to close if you want to drive the virus down. Uh, I think we can keep things like playgrounds and takeout restaurants open because they're probably not a major source of transmission, right? So, so there's a lot of nuance here, but certainly it, these areas where the virus is out of control need more drastic action than they are currently taking. Uh, I don't think that masks, for example, are going to be enough uh, at this stage to stop the spread. It, the lower number of cases that you're starting from, the less drastic action that you need. So it, it if you wait, it's only going to get more painful. And remember also that as as much as unfortunately it's a big struggle too at the same time you're calling for some of these measures you still however have to improve your public health systems right and i think we have seen that there's you know well first we've already recognized that you know we clearly were unprepared as just as a as a health system in general um and some of these communities have um, had these issues mostly also because there has been either no plan or that they still are not very clear of how you can move forward with a much more um, successful planning and even strategy, right? You know, we have to, you know, uh, I guess recognize that. So in at the same time that we, each individual or each of us that are members of a community contribute, we have to be able to have the backup and the backing of the system, you know, our public health systems of how do we continue doing the best efforts for diagnosing? How do we at least um, provide um, better mechanisms to ensure that we don't totally collapse the health system? As we're seeing, for instance, in Houston, where there's going to be a point where there's not going to be even enough beds in the hospitals. And then remember, there's a lot of other health situations that are even unrelated to COVID-19 and we're going to have to make decisions of what are you going to do unless you have COVID-19, you can't even go to the hospitals anymore. So we have to put it in context that it's, it's going to be a requirement of an ecosystem of also ensuring that we continue improving and setting up clear roadmaps here and clear strategies. And I have a feeling that we still are not very clear that many of these uh, communities or even um, cities or even states um, have a clear understanding of what those strategies should look like. I echo that 100%. The idea of any kind of shutdown is to drive cases back low, but then you need a strategy in place to keep them low. And that is not reopening high risk things. That's part of it. But also there's having enough tests to do surveillance, to uh, identify when cases start to go up uh, ahead of time. It's having the public health infrastructure in place to test, trace, and isolate, just like what we've been talking about. We need to test everyone to figure out who's sick. We need to be able to trace their contacts so that uh, they can be identified and asked to quarantine as well. And, uh, and of course, we need to isolate anybody who, uh, who uh, tests positive. 
So, you know, that requires a robust public health infrastructure and you need to be using the time when you're not in panic mode to build that up. So one thing that I think I've heard from people who, again, are are maybe less enthusiastic or less concerned about still taking all of the necessary actions that that you guys would recommend is that cases, although on the rise, deaths as a result of those cases don't seem to be climbing in the same way they were uh, a couple of months ago or, or six weeks ago or four weeks ago. And one of the things Dr. Batazzi said earlier, which was that we don't understand necessarily what all of the long-term consequences are of a person who gets the virus. And, and that, to me, one of the stories I've heard that that you know bothers me as a, as a new father personally is that so there, you know, we've known for a while that children don't seem to get when they when they contract the virus, they don't experience symptoms in the same way that adults do respiratory or otherwise. But now there are some of these concerning stories that have come out about things like I think it's called Kawasaki disease or the uh, inflammatory disease or inflammatory syndrome that children get after they have COVID as a result. And those kinds of things you know, perhaps they exist for uh, children, but perhaps they exist for, you know, people of uh, populations of a different age as well. And we just haven't really put two and two together yet. Um, can one of you speak to maybe Dr. Batasi, since you made that point earlier, uh, you know, how that ties into what we need to be concerned about and remain diligent about now? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, first, you're right. I mean, uh, the reason why we have, albeit uh, not perfectly, but have seen a little bit less deaths in the co- in context, it's again, it's because our doctors and those who are really taking care of, unfortunately, those who uh, end up being hospitalized and even in the intensive care units, have now at least figured at least something to. Um, uh, through clinical management tools, right, um, reduce and understand how to certainly avoid re- reaching to the point of where uh, an individual dies. But remember, we are burdening those healthcare providers and those doctors in a way that you guys have absolutely no idea. I mean, I know colleagues of ours who, you know, they have absolutely no break. I mean, they work r- more than 24-7 and we can't continue, you know, putting that burden on our doctors um, by by in still having to have all these people having to go and getting themselves hospitalized. Albeit true, they may not eventually die, but again, it's it's an enormous burden. And then, second, what you were pointing out, it's true, right? Again, we don't know, especially in our pediatrics population, and certainly our teenagers and even young adults. Um, how that in context uh, and as we age and as we have other um, things that are certainly burden us around, whether it's nutrition and eventually diabetes or whether it's another infectious disease um, or whether it's just any other underlying risk, how, you know, a year from now, three years from now, five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, how that is going to create a set of new morbidities just because of the consequence of having all these individuals which uh, claim that they could, you know, now get themselves infected because they are, you know, in theory, not going to have this burden at this time. But it's it, it's it's still unclear. 
Uh, and that's something that we still do not have a lot of evidence, except for some of these initial hints. Uh, and that should pause us in therefore knowing that, you know, we are going to start seeing probably a lot more consequences coming out of these infections. And they all will also be measured based on how much virus infection the individual got, for how long, how much we were able to control uh, the infection by our own means, meaning our own body. And here I bring, therefore, the attention of the urgent need that eventually um, these vaccines that we are also hearing that are being developed eventually are going to be primarily the the long-term solution that we all really need to look forward to. Right. I agree with all of that, but I want to throw in a major note of caution about uh, deaths not rising yet. Deaths right now reflect infections from maybe a month or even longer ago. This virus kills slowly. So you get infected, you show symptoms maybe a few days to two weeks later, Maybe they're severe enough to send you to the hospital a week after that, and then maybe you die a couple weeks after that. So, And then it takes a week or more to even report that death out because it takes time to fill out the death certificate and work through the various levels of bureaucracy until it's actually reported out. So after you sum up all of that, deaths are what we call a lagging indicator, meaning cases are going to go up, 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 up for weeks probably before we see any substantial effect on deaths. So it is possible, it is possible that we are seeing fewer deaths because uh, more young people are getting infected. And uh, we know that COVID-19 kills young people at substantially lower rates uh, than it does old people. That's probably part of it, but it's not all of it. And the virus is not going to stay there. We need to wait at least another couple of weeks uh, to see if deaths are going to uptick uh, from this latest surge. And, uh, and even if they don't immediately, I am certainly very concerned for the virus migrating from the younger people who got it at bars uh, to older family members or coworkers or uh, other contacts that these people have. Um, it's a fantasy to think that we can like only infect those uh, 20 to 50. That's that's not how society works. You don't segregate that completely. Uh, so I, I would be very cautious about claiming uh, that deaths are down because they're not reflecting the recent surge yet. And uh, anybody who tells you they're 100% sure they're going to go up or they're going to stay down uh, is lying to you. It could go either way. And we need to hold our breath and keep an eye on that. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly uh, very concerned. Totally agree, Dr. Binney. Totally agree. Are there other viruses that have been around or other diseases in general that have been around that, that have that kind of consequence? This, this, You experience the disease, you have the immediate symptoms and the immediate illness, and then you recover from those symptoms, but then you have these lingering or you know long-term morbidities, you said, uh, Dr. Batazzi, or um, other consequences that come you know, much later after you've recovered from the initial uh, illness that people would be familiar with that, that, you know, not that we know that that is or is not going to happen with this coronavirus, but whenever it's talked about as a possibility, is there anything that we can use as an example of what potentially that could look like that already exists that we know about? Well, the perfect example is West Nile virus. Uh, 
um, we already know, and especially again using the example of Texas, uh, one of our colleagues uh, in our National School of Tropical Medicine here at Baylor, uh, Dr. Christy Murray, she's actually been following now uh, more than 10, 15 years cohorts of individuals who were uh, infected with West Nile virus. And until now, we're starting to see that they have um, huge sequelae in the area of kidney disease, and they all end up uh, with very severe chronic kidney diseases. Uh, and again, we probably did not recognize that um, uh, um, situation uh, early in infection, but it definitely has evolved in the sense that small um, shedding of the virus, you can still detect it for a long, long time in, in the systems to the point where eventually can lead to these uh, consequences. Absolutely. I mean, there's many diseases that do this too, right? Uh, depending on, again, uh, reinfection or just the fact that you can't really, really ever, you know, 100% sure that you are totally free um, of the infection. Uh, and it's also, of course, dependent on the techniques of how we detect. Uh, but we don't know. And so uh, I think, um, you know, we have a, a huge possibility that we're going to start seeing things such as uh, uh, chronic cardiac diseases or kidney diseases or even other diseases. Uh, Dr. Bini, any other examples that you may think of? Uh, one that comes to mind would be human papillomavirus, which we know causes uh, cervical cancer uh, a little bit down the line. Uh, so that's another one that comes to mind. But there's there's certainly a number of examples of viruses having a, a long-term effects that don't appear right uh, right at the start. They can have long-term changes in the body. So this would certainly not be like the first one we've ever seen. There's, there's reason to suspect uh, that, that this may be the case. Whenever we talk right now, we use the term coronavirus or COVID-19. I think people are talking about it in a way as if there is one particular thing and one particular version of this virus that we are all dealing with. But uh, Dr. Batazzi, you made the comment earlier that in the Americas, there's a particular strain that we're fighting. Are there additional strains that exist in other parts of the world? And is there any worry or any possibility that those are going to arrive and then sort of affect people uh, maybe either again or people who uh, experienced something previously and if it wasn't very severe, now they could interact with a different strain and have a different kind of experience? So, look, I mean, the family of coronaviruses, of course, is quite vast, uh, both at the level of human coronaviruses as well as these um, coronaviruses that circulate in other species. Uh, clearly, we, we know that the ones that have been causing these outbreaks, which now it's been three uh, different outbreaks, um, you know, have been the most severe, but of course we also have other coronaviruses and like any virus or by, you know, in any case, any pathogen or even ourselves, you know, we mutate, right? You know, there's, there's, uh, uh numbers of, uh, changes that we, that, you know, organisms have, you know, of course, to try to, um, in, increase the, the ability of them to survive in a given host, right? Um, so we are already seeing how, um, albeit uh, it hasn't been uh, uh, detec detected that any of these mutations are are causing that the virus becomes more ag uh, aggressive or severe. We clearly have seen that the strain that circulates in the U.S. and in the Americas 
has evolved from the original strain that was originated, you know, um, in China. Um, it definitely seems to be more infectious, even though it may not seem more severe as far as pathogenic uh, pathogenesis. But this just raises the concern that this is not going to be the last time that we are most likely going to see coronaviruses circulating and potentially causing disease amongst humans, right? Um, and it may even, like you alluded, we don't know what's going to happen if you have combinations of these coronaviruses or, in fact, you know, having um, SARS-like or, or other what we call beta coronavirus-like uh, viruses. Um, so we need to prepare, right? We need to prepare that definitely, uh, again, going back to have more robust health systems in place that could not only rapidly recognize, but tackle these early, uh, ensure that, you know, there's uh, not only ways to test and trace and isolate, but also prevent. And again, the aspiration with the development of vaccines is ultimately also to look at what we call, you know, more universal type of vaccines that we don't have to make vaccines for one specific coronavirus, but eventually a vaccine that could, uh, you know, confer protection for, uh, you know, old old ones or even potentially even new ones. So where do we stand as of right now with the progress towards a vaccine? Originally, the, the conversation, I think it was Dr. Benny, that was something you and I spoke about previously. And you said, I mean, a year, year and a half. I mean, anything shorter than that is is quite optimistic, not impossible, but certainly optimistic. You know, we've been at this now for a couple of months. So, you know, the timeline wouldn't be if we were sticking to that terribly shorter. But do we have any sort of um, indication that that we are going to, you know, break some records and find something that is going to be uh, available much, much sooner than anything we've done in the past? I'm going to let Dr. Batazzi take a first crack at this. She's the vaccine expert. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. I, I was I was waiting for you to to say something, Dr. Bini, but but uh, I, I'm sure you you're going to comment on me. So absolutely, there's been some amazing, amazing uh, advances. I mean, we definitely not only actually from the vaccine field specifically, but also learning a little bit about what we call. Um, the convalescent sera or convalescent plasma. I, I think you've heard, you know, that of course people uh, tend to also mount a, a response uh, independent of a vaccine. We we're already learning a little bit of the fact that we we are very clear that for us to 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 tackle this immunologically or our bodies, we require what it's called neutralizing antibodies, which are little cells that produce these molecules that act as, um, uh, to be honest, like that make our bodies practice ahead of ourselves getting infected by such virus and already be ready by uh, interfering with some essential function of the virus. And in this case, vaccines are targeting the ability of blocking the uh, virus uh, to enter our, our human cells by um, kind of like... Uh, protecting the spike protein and not allowing it to dock into the receptor within our cells. Many vaccines have been developed. Some of them are quite advanced uh, with using many modalities. 
some modalities are a little bit more what we call crude modalities, for example, using the entire virus that you culture in the, in, in, in the laboratory, then you uh, inactivate it, and then you use that as, an, as your um, vaccine candidate. And that usually have shown now that um, maybe it's not perfect, but it does confer some good neutralizing uh, potential or providing neutralizing antibodies. Some other molecules have shown some protection, but not 100% protection. Um, There's certainly now uh, all of them being uh, tested in very um, a very small number of people. And this is where we need now to advance the clinical trials where from phase one, which, which of course test these vaccines in very small numbers to even large, large thousands of people uh, trials, which are these phase three trials. And then the other area that it's been um, kind of advancing is this concept of advanced manufacturing, meaning how many of these, um, uh, whether they work or not, or we don't know whether they work or not yet, could be now already um, scaled up, uh, produced in a way that we could have them ready. And some of them, of course, are easier to be made. Um, some of them are, of course, cheaper, and uh, some of them we have more experience. Some of them we already have factories for uh, locally and even globally. And I think that's where um, a lot of it is also happening, where we are doing uh, at the same time the testing, while at the same time we're preparing for the manufacturing. I think the last piece that we're still not very, very clear about, and I think we need to make sure we don't forget, is the distribution channels. And eventually, once we have potentially these vaccines um, approved for some use, probably not used for everybody, but a a few uh, indications, how exactly are we going to distribute them? Who's going to distribute them? How are we going to do this distribution? And can we do this distribution equitably um, around the world? Um, so a lot of good uh, uh, news, uh, a lot of hard work. Uh, we still are going to need some time. Uh, we're seeing uh, good signals, uh, both at the level of you know some good safety signals as well as some good efficacy signals, but still not perfect. But um, time will cer- certainly tell which ones. And at the end, again, it's not a single vaccine that will do the job for everything and everybody. We're probably going to have to have not only initial, what we call, you know, first generation vaccines, but then we are going to continue striving to second and third generation vaccines to eventually come to the point where we have this so-called um, universal vaccines for all distributed equitably, equally and affordable. So in terms of a timeline, I think people are a little more optimistic than we were at the start, but we really still have to wait and see. Uh, these phase three trials are really going to uh, to show us the real world, well, the, the efficacy in broader populations. At least that's the hope. <clears throat> you know, I heard, I would be curious for Dr. Batazzi's take on this, but Dr. Fauci seemed to say that it's it's possible that we have at least, you know, one of these first generation vaccines by January, which would be about 12 months, uh, which is faster than, you know, we talked about mid to late 2021, now maybe early 2021. Dr. Batazzi, do you think that that's plausible based on what we've seen so far? 
I think it's plausible. I think what we are still not very clear, because as you mentioned, you know, the real defining decision of their uh, ability to be deployed into the population will be the results from these large phase three trials, because they are designed statistically, of course, uh, um, to be able to pick up any potential, again, sequelae uh, or um, any kind of uh, um, safety signals, right? Uh, so until we, of course, don't see that evidence, we won't know. And then second is, again, remember, most of these studies are still being done. Um, even these large studies are being done with a very specific populations, which are adult, healthy populations. So we will have to really understand uh, from the data how how that decision of who these vaccines will initially be be able to be used for, and how we're going to monitor the, uh, uh, of course, initial indication of this vaccine. Meaning that it's plausible that we will have a vaccine that could be used for a very narrow indication with the intent that from that data, we can design additional studies to determine uh, how, for instance, you know, a vaccine can be used for pediatrics or how a vaccine could be used for the elderly population or how a vaccine can be used for um, people who may uh, have underlying uh, uh, chronic uh, illness or even pregnant women or even, you know, uh, patients with uh, immune suppressed, you know, cancers and other diseases, right? Right. So that's that's a really good point that it's not going to be just one vaccine or, or suddenly for everybody. You've got to worry about, you know, manufacturing, what you're trying to do in advance. You've got to worry about distribution. You've got to worry about who the vaccine is good for. But um, basically, my understanding is nothing that we were afraid of going wrong has gone wrong yet. But that's no guarantee that that luck will continue in the future. So we're we're still keeping our fingers crossed, but maybe things look a little rosier than we last talked. I guess if you want an optimistic scenario, and I don't think this is likely, I think maybe 10 or 15% chance still, I don't know. I'm just putting numbers out there. I wouldn't bet above 50%. Let me put it that way. But let's say we do have a vaccine by January that can be used for some fraction of the population. Maybe it gets uh, prioritized for healthcare workers first, which would make sense. My sort of vision of a triumphant return to fans in stadiums uh, would be, and this is the absolutely most optimistic possible scenario, would be uh, the Super Bowl with an audience of vaccinated healthcare heroes, right? You could see the NFL loving that, right? So that's if people want this optimistic rainbow, you know, pie in the sky kind of hope, that's that's what I would be looking at. But it, it could easily be uh, uh, longer than that. Well, it's appropriate that we're transitioning to sports because obviously this is supposed to, I mean, most of the time this is a sports-based podcast, but we are, uh, you know, talking about something that affects something much, much larger than that. But if we can talk about the, the NFL and, and other sports leagues in general as well, so the Major League Baseball is trying to move forward with with an arrangement of them playing games. The NBA has been trying to get things in place. So apparently they're going to have two locations where they can have games played. And the NFL is, you know, by benefiting by being the league whose uh, season starts the latest, they're sort of being able to just sort of wait and see a little bit with a lot of things. But 
I think that the idea of fans in the stands that that is slowly sunsetting in people's minds and doesn't seem uh, very feasible or likely considering how we're learning the virus spreads. My question is, what needs to be in place for the players? You know, if you think about football players on a, on a field, there's a ton of contact. There's people panting, shouting, sweating, you know, spitting unintentionally, maybe intentionally, you know, all kinds of things like that all over the place. And the idea that anything would not transmit, you know, obviously is, is, is ludicrous between, between players there. So what from an epidemiological perspective or from a, from a medical professional perspective, what needs to be in place or what kind of protocols need to be in place for the safety of these players and whoever else they spend time with in their in their regular life considering what playing football actually entails right so football and basketball are probably the two hardest sports to bring back in a pandemic because of the close contact and the number of players uh, on the field. It's groups of folks who are in extended close contact. So to safely play, you need to be able to reliably say that nobody who's getting on the field has the virus, right? Like you need to be almost certain of that and you need to make an enormous upfront investment to prevent that. That to my mind uh, if you're a professional league, involves some combination of centralization or sequestering, like the NBA's bubble, where you really restrict contact between those inside the league and those outside the league. And uh, number two is daily or at least every other day testing, so that you can be reasonably sure that you are catching cases and removing them from the broader system almost as soon as they become infectious, so that one case stays one case. Because with the amount of virus we have in a lot of sports markets in this country, um, you're going to be getting cases popping up from time to time. So that's the approach that I think uh, we need to be thinking about taking in the pros. Uh, In college, I think it's a lot harder because there's no way that you can establish any kind of bubble, just being realistic. And most programs don't have the resources or the willingness uh, to even do regular testing, as we've already seen with outbreak after outbreak uh, at summer workouts. So I'm um, I'm definitely somewhat pessimistic uh, for college football. I think the NFL has the resources to pull it off, but we're still waiting for uh, for the details of their plan. But I think the virus is going to dictate the necessary plan, right? Countries like Germany, South Korea, New Zealand, their sports leagues can all return with less strict plans because they got the virus under control in all the markets in which they're playing. We didn't. So we're reaping what we've sowed. And uh, and it's going to be harder for our sports to come back. And it's already taken longer and, and they're going to need stricter plans. You can't use the plan that worked in Germany. That's what Major League Baseball is trying to do. And uh, unfortunately, I, I happen to think it's uh, it's doomed to failure. But I guess we'll see over the next couple of months. I'm a scientist. I always have to be open to being wrong. But um, But I'm certainly very, very concerned about their plan, which involves playing in home markets and living at home and um, and not uh, uh, sequestering in any way. I'm, I'm very nervous about that in areas with a lot of virus. So honestly, that plan might work okay for like the Red Sox, but it's not for the Astros. 
because there's just too many cases of the virus in Houston right now uh, that really raise the risk of, of somebody coming to work sick. And because of a false negative or just testing on the wrong day, you don't catch it and it, it gets spread around because uh, you can take a lot of steps. You can wear masks. Hopefully adherence is near 100%. You can restrict time in the locker room, but uh, you know, you're still spending a lot of time around each other. And, uh, and I would certainly be nervous for transmission um, in any of those atmospheres. You also mentioned fans and you said you hoped we were kind of past that. Um, we're not, which is really upsetting to me. And if anything, I see it kind of going in the opposite direction where people started talking about, okay, maybe no fans. Well, okay, but but could we do 10 or 15%? Okay, but now Texas is allowing 25%. Oh, now Texas is saying 50% is okay. Oh, let's, uh, you know, in NASCAR, it was, uh, let's put 5,000 people in Talladega, which was maybe 5% capacity. Uh, in a, about a week or 10 days, they want to put 30,000 people in Bristol, which is 20% capacity. The Indy 500 wants to have 175,000 people together to watch that race. That's 50% capacity. Leagues and people are pushing the envelope in a way that I think is incredibly dangerous, incredibly reckless, incredibly irresponsible. And I want to emphasize again that I want zero fans, certainly at professional and college events, until we have a vaccine. The risk-benefit-reward the risk benefit balance just doesn't make sense here, right? You can argue that there are real benefits to getting pro sports back on TV, economic and psychological benefits, and that maybe you could do it in a way that doesn't increase the risk very much. But gathering thousands of people together for an optional event that only puts money in the pockets of owners and leagues while creating a massive public health risk None of this makes any sense. This is the lowest hanging fruit that we can act on to stop uh, the spread of COVID-19. These are begging to be super spreading events. And we need to all agree that there are just a few things that we can't do right now until we have a vaccine. People say that public health folks need to compromise, right? We can't just tell people to uh, stay at home all the time. And I agree. I agree. We need to give people low and moderate risk options for things that they can do. I agree. And I am not advocating for a lockdown for the next six months. I understand that's not feasible, but it's also incumbent on the people who just want to do whatever they want to also compromise, right? And so We've got to all be able to compromise on things like no concerts. Vanilla Ice just canceled that planned concert that he had. Uh, and if Vanilla Ice realizes it, how can you not? You're smarter than Vanilla Ice, I promise you. Uh, and and sporting events and nightclubs and conventions and big uh, indoor sporting events, even without fans. Like I've heard of this, uh, this youth volleyball tournament that wants to bring over 300 teams from 27 states to Orlando, Florida, where cases are spiking for an indoor volleyball tournament of kids and families. It's just, it boggles the mind. There have to be, there has to be compromise from both ends of the spectrum. Okay. And we need to agree that there are some events that are just too dangerous to do right now. And and those are some of them that I just listed. And uh, fans at sporting events is certainly something that falls into that category for me. When we talk about the sequestering of players I have heard, you know, the term about the bubble and about players being, you know, taken from their families and loved ones and sort of living just with their team and their opponents in these 
uh, communities and, and isolating them so that they can participate in the in the, the games themselves. Can you put any more specifics as to what really that looks like? Is it is it really that simple that just you set up these people in a facility and everybody has all, like, sort of like a, a dormitory arrangement where the players and the coaches and everybody who's a part of the organization that has to be at the game and on the field is there and they those people are all just away from their families, their their wives, their children, uh, their siblings and uh, their parents, etc. until the season is over or until their team is eliminated or whatnot? Or is there more to it than that? I mean, there's no reason in theory, other than space and logistics, that you couldn't have family members as well. It just costs more. And, you know, the NBA has talked about after the first round of the playoffs, allowing a limited number of family members in. The key is that you don't have people going in and out of any bubble that you set up. You don't want any face-to-face contact between people who are inside that bubble and don't leave and people who are outside that bubble and uh, and don't come in, with the exception of uh, you know a few workers who can come in wearing masks, wearing PPE, and uh, never coming face-to-face with uh, anybody in the league. Because the key is to eliminate face-to-face contact between people inside the league and outside the league. And if you ever leave that bubble, uh, you need a two-week quarantine before you can come back in. Because if the virus gets inside the bubble, uh, there's a good chance it's it's compromised and it's going to spread through that bubble. Uh, Dr. Batazzi, what, what would you say? Uh, yes, and 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 I know it's a it's a hard topic to to define what the bubble actually is, right? And how strict the bubble can be. Um, and and I I would just add that you know you can have different layers of bubbles as long as again you have a, a first of all you have to have a, a a clear roadmap with a clear algorithm of again you know the uh, amount of testing that needs to be done, the, 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 how often to do the testing, uh, the, the ability of also doing at some level some of the um, contact tracing, right? You know, to, again, you could arguably say, look, you know, I have a player who has been uh, in his room and then he went and spent the weekend in his house with his wife and kids, but understanding also where their, his wife and kids were, were have, had been and whether they, you know, and again, how long do these sporting uh, events usually happen within a given season, right? I mean, it's not a forever thing, but really put in a, a roadmap of, and then decide how uh, extreme you have to be and how you can slowly add in the ability of making it less stringent than stringent as long as you have to have a very, very detailed um, tracing, right? And a very detailed tracking of where we all are going uh, in a given day or time, right? Especially the players per se, because as you said, you know, they come in such close contact that I need to know where each and everyone have been for the pretty much the last 14 days prior to a given game, right? You know, and that, I guess, goes for all the different teams. So it's not just a single team. I mean, it, it's it's complicated, correct. It's definitely complicated. I think you're right. With the right resources and with a good plan in place, at least for the benefit of the players and for those who are directly going to be involved within the team, 
um, it's definitely something that could be doable. And then you just have to manage again, how, you know, how the audience, right? And you know, and and if we have to suffer where the audience really relies on just being a virtual audience, well, so be it, right? Yep. And the last thing I want to say about a bubble is that um, a lot of people think that it has to be one location. I think that you can probably get away with multiple locations. I mean, I have no problem with the NHL's plan, which is uh, two hubs in Edmonton and Toronto. Um, I also have been advocating lately for a plan based around home market bubbles, which, you know, are certainly looser probably than a single bubble like in Orlando, like the NBA is doing. But, you know, if you do private charter travel, you fly out of executive airports, you test the pilots and the flight crew, uh, along with everybody who's in your bubble. Um, I think that the risks of spreading the virus uh, that way during travel are probably fairly low. So if you were, say, the NFL and you wanted to create a bubble in each market where it's like hotels and the stadiums and you only go from the hotel to the stadium and the stadium to the hotel and that's it and you just kind of live in that that bubble that you've set up in your market and then you travel for away games and you don't leave the hotel or interact with the broader city when you travel, especially if you're coming from an area with a lot of virus to an area with less virus, uh, then I think that that might be plausible as well. But I really don't think with the amount of virus we have in this country right now, you can afford a plan or a plan is going to work that's based around living at home and not doing stupid stuff on the honor system because you're relying on all the players, all the staff, all their family members, all their contacts. It's, I'm just afraid it's just not realistic, right? It might work if there are relatively few cases of the virus floating around, but eventually its weakness is going to get exposed. And the more chances it has for its weakness to get exposed, that is the more cases that could uh, come into contact and, and leak through into the league, um, it's going to fail eventually. And I'm really afraid it's going to fail in areas like Florida, Texas, and Arizona, even if it works in Massachusetts. So just a quick question, because as you guys know, I am not as versed in the sports arena like you all. So how much are we talking about here usually during these seasons? Are we, I mean, it can be just considered as a nice, long, nice little vacation, right? Is it two weeks? Is it two months? Is it, how much, how much time do these, sports teams would need to be in within these bubbles well for the nba if you make it to the finals it's going to be about three months i think Mm -hmm. uh for the nfl i mean if you made it to the super bowl that would be half the year six months Mm -hmm. so minimum four months to make it five months to make it through the regular season um it's a while but hey, you know, they really make a lot of money. So I'm sure they could adjust their lives for six months, three to six months. I wish I could say the same for us scientists, right? We clearly have to do things without having that luxury. And I have to say, uh, albeit the situation is not easy, but I think, you know, maybe there is something to learn from how we've managed to keep, uh, even in the context of the of, of medical centers, how they're keeping even our own staff and our own um, scientists and physicians protected, albeit, of course, is not perfect, but and the contact may not be the same, except for maybe those who are clearly in the COVID-19 wards. 
but um, we maybe we can learn some things from other other sectors. I think the best probably is the the our astronauts that are now in space, and when they come back, those probably are the ones who can attest for what it means to live in a bubble for such extended periods of time. Yeah, it's uh, it's not an easy request for players. I would say, and I wouldn't want to to downplay that in any way and be like, this is easy, just do it. But it is important for us to not mix up the best we can do with what needs to be done. And, you know, if the players said, hey, this bubble, not going to fly. We're not willing to do it. I completely understand that. And I respect it. And I don't criticize them at all for it. I wouldn't blame them. But then the conclusion to that shouldn't be so let's play this season this other dangerous way. It should be then we can't have the season, and I would respect that conclusion. But but we need to be realistic. That is sort of where I have been bouncing around for weeks. Whenever the idea of the bubble was first presented, I think it was the NBA that was that was floating that, and then the NHL had their version of it, and and every sports league is obviously trying something a little bit different than their than their peers. But the the ask of the players is in some ways, you know, we do ask these things uh, in extreme scenarios of astronauts who have, you know, who are evaluated in order to even get into their program for a certain sort of um, mental fitness for what they're going to be going through and what they have to accomplish. Is it the same? No, it's obviously no, it's nowhere near as as challenging and whatnot, but it is there are similarities as was brought up. And the same is true for our our healthcare workers, you know, many of whom are living in their basements away from their families because they, you know, they don't want to expose their loved ones from whatever they may experience at, at their workplace. And I guess the thing that I, I I have been curious about, and I would be interested in for either of your or both of your opinions on this, there is a significant mental load to the people who are dealing with this in ways that that it really impacts them more than others, right? There, there is a handful of people in um, in in society right now who have been um, probably lucky enough. I don't know another word to describe it, where their life has been somewhat. Um, it's just been interrupted to a much much lower degree than others. They haven't gotten ill. They haven't lost their work. They they work from home, and it's not terribly different from whatever they were doing in their office setting, aside from just not being in the proximity to their coworkers. Of course, there's an adjustment for everybody with that stuff, but you know, the the, the severity of it varies so wildly um, with with everyone. Uh, and, and the people who are having to deal with very, very significant changes like healthcare workers, and, you know, in their own way, the way athletes would have to uh, experience life during a season where they were playing amidst the pandemic. Can you guys talk about the mental load that people are um, carrying? And, and if anybody who's listening to this in their own personal life, regardless of the interruptions or the severity or how it, you know, how it has been for them, if they're feeling the weight of that mental load, or if these athletes are going to be future, are going to be dealing with the weight of the mental load in the future as they, you know, have to adapt to whatever changes are impressed upon them. What are the best practices for people to deal with that side of things? Now, obviously, that's not, you know, that's not dealing with the virus as we've been talking about it for the last hour. But do you guys have any insight about 
how people deal with that side of things during all this or how they maybe best could? I really don't. I'm I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't really want to I don't think I want to comment too much on that area except just to say that uh, I think all of us experience the stress, we feel the distraction. The athletes are humans too, right? They're not immune and imagine how it would be if uh, you were asked to leave your family uh potentially for 2 months or 3 months uh in the middle of a situation like this. Um I imagine that it would not be a pleasant thing to do. Uh, and so just, just recognize that these athletes are, are humans. These are people and have some, some understanding of that and have some empathy, uh, for them. They do not exist just for your amusement and money does not fix everything, right? Uh, it'll be really interesting to see any effects on performance, uh, I suppose um, you would expect that stress and distraction would yield would lead to some degradations, but uh, but I'm not a sports psychologist, so I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I think it is it's a very difficult question that what you're asking because we all are human beings, and you know, and and we all have definitely have suffered through this pandemic uh, at all, many different levels. And I think it's, uh, I agree. I mean, we all have to be empathetic and we, we all in our fields of, uh, of, of work and even in our personal lives, um, uh, understand what, uh, you know, the difficulties that this, this situation has been posing through these uh, few months, but also in, for the future. But I think therefore that's why we should probably make sure that this is a, uh, you know, these decisions are made, again, with no um, uh, certainly economic or political interest, right? That these these are really looking at, you know, what is the best for not only the players, what it would be the best for um, our society in general, because we all, of course, are playing a role in, in the world, right? So uh, it's very difficult, dis- uh, very difficult dis- uh, discussions, um, you know, uh, the topic of uh, of mental health. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Benny and Dr. Batazzi, I want to thank you guys so much for your generosity of time and talking with us and sharing your, your expertise. Um, do you, either of you have any last comments that you'd like to add before we uh, wrap this conversation up? No, I just, I mean, from my part, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Nick, and with Dr. Benny. Uh, I know we, we connect on and off also through other social media. So it's, it's just wonderful to hear uh, all the perspectives. And I have to say, I am learning a lot about sports. So I thank you for that, too. Um, but I, uh, my, my last words is just, again, each of us uh, uh, have to make sure we take care of ourselves and our families. But at the end of the day, we do also have a responsibility towards uh, uh, our communities and the world. So please be safe. Please use common sense, especially during this uh, 4th of July, and just uh, reflect on what uh, the meaning of uh, independence and uh, certainly freedom and, uh, uh, and the privilege that we have, uh, uh, not only uh, being in this country. So I uh, wish the best to all of your listeners and be safe. Yeah, I would echo that message. Um, wear a mask. Uh, don't gather in large numbers for extended periods of time, especially indoors. And um, 
and yeah, do reflect on on what freedom and independence mean and the fact that those words are not without limits because we are all members of a society and and part of an interconnected community. We're we're all part of a team. And I think a virus is one of the things that can really make that so very, very clear. There are some things that we don't do, right? That are just, that are not allowed for the sake of everybody and everybody's health and the society's health. For example, you don't poop in the street to be crude about it, right? You don't. We ask you to go inside and use the bathroom. And if you do, poop in the street, you can be issued a ticket. And I'm not advocating for tickets for not wearing masks or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, we as a society, we've all agreed that there are some things that aren't okay, right? And that we shouldn't do. And especially with an infectious disease, your personal choices don't just stay your personal choices. They affect everyone around you. They affect your family. They affect your neighbors. So, so reflect on that. Think about that. Um, do everything you can to be part of the solution uh, and not part of the problem. And uh, and hopefully we'll we'll get this driven down again and um, and be able to take easier steps moving forward and get sports back because I I think we can all agree uh, that that's something that we would like to see if at all possible. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for speaking with us, and uh, I hope that you guys are all well and your loved ones as well. And yours as well, Nick. Thank you, Nick. So that's it. That's where we are. That is what we know. That is what we don't know. That is what we ought to do. Wear masks. (laughs) Wear masks. You know, I I actually just found out this evening, in between the time I recorded with Dr. Biddy and Dr. Batazzi and the time I'm recording this right now, that the city that I'm in, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, the the county executive is going to be trying to impose a countywide mask ordinance or mandate on Tuesday, and the mayor of Cleveland signed an executive order that masks are required as of tonight, Friday night. So, uh, what do you say? You know, I, I try to keep our heads on straight. Try to not freak out. Try to try to hold down the fort. Try to do what's best by you and your family. I try to do what's best by me and my family, and 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 by my neighbors and everybody else that we care about. And hopefully, we can all take these words of advice and these encouragements, and we can do what needs to be done. And we can also. Could also still have some semblance of happiness and normalcy and all of that joy and connectedness as we are dealing with everything that's going on. So thanks for sticking with me. I know it's an unconventional episode, but that's kind of part of how chat with Nickback goes anyways. So I guess you can get a little bit used to that, but hopefully there are brighter days ahead and hopefully we are all going to be talking about football actual the football the game actual actual you know passes actual runs actual turnovers actual tackles actual plays that were called hopefully we get to talk about that stuff soon and until next week let me know what you think of the show head over to itunes leave us a review let us know what you think of what chat with nick bad is you know i'm relatively new Uh, if you like it then let me know that'd be great i'd love to see it i'd love to see it But thank you very much for tuning in. And until next week, Nick Bad out.
to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.